Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Has God ever revealed something about His will for your life, but the way it came to pass was totally unexpected? Have you ever felt like you were being treated unfairly, even violently, by others or by your circumstances in life? When all you were trying to do was trust in God, live for Him, and do what was right. What do we do when that happens? How should we respond? That's what I'd like us to give attention to today in our second installment of our Advent 2020 series, Unexpected, Waiting on God When Our Plans Fall Apart. In this four-part series, we're looking at biblical characters who experience God through unexpected events. Biblical characters whose ideas about God and their plans for the future were challenged and disrupted. Yet they were surprised by God's faithfulness, mercy, and love after a period period of waiting on Him. Last week we kicked off our Advent series with Abraham and Sarah, way back where the redemptive narrative began. And through their story, we saw how God meets us where we are and blesses our messy lives. We said that God isn't looking for perfect people, but faithful people, people who want to grow in their trust and their reliance upon him and experience the blessings of heaven, despite how many times we fail. Because as we'll continue to see in this series, we will never mature in our faith and be used by God if we don't learn to let him use our circumstances to grow us. And today's biblical character knows all about that. For this guy went from being daddy's favorite to being left for dead in a pit by his brothers, only then to be sold into slavery, falsely accused, and then thrown into prison for something that he didn't do. All before God would elevate him to Pharaoh's palace and see his dreams fulfilled and his life ultimately vindicated. Who was this person? It was Joseph the 11th son of Jacob and the grandson of Isaac, who we were introduced to last week. So let's jump into Joseph's life, starting in Genesis chapter 37, and see his, what his story can teach us about God, about ourselves, and how we too can live by faith and how we should apply this message to our lives. Genesis 37, beginning with verse 3 and 4. It says, Now Israel, uh, that is the name given to Jacob after he wrestles with God, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now you'll notice uh, back in verse 3, ornate robe, depending on what translation you're reading, may say multicolored tunic, uh, a coat of many colors, a long robe with sleeves, 
One commentator says this is a dress coat. Now, first, why did Jacob or Israel love Joseph more? The text says he had been born to him in his old age. Well, some of that may be reminiscent of what happened with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, the child is special because he's born in, later in life. But you remember that Jacob also had children by Leah uh, and later Rachel. First Joseph and then later we'll see Benjamin. Uh, but, but Rachel was the one that, that Jacob really loved. And so later in life from the woman he really loved, Joseph is very special to Jacob. Now why this special coat? Well, we don't know why a coat, but it's obviously a sign of favor. As we'll see through the biblical family in Genesis, uh, the biblical family of Abraham, uh, this is a, a reoccurring problem, showing favoritism toward a wife or a child or so forth, and it brings on lots of trouble. So Jacob's favoritism wasn't the only reason, though, why Joseph's brothers hated him. Well, let's pick back up with verse 5. Verse 5 said, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, Joseph's mistake wasn't that he had had the dream. The dream was from God. It was that this 17-year-old dared to share his dream that indicated that he would one day rule over his brothers. Now, dreams in the ancient Near East are one way that people believe they could hear from the gods. And in this case, Joseph believes that he has heard from the one true God, and that this God has used the same, this same method of communication and is trying to tell Joseph something about his future. But in his youth, he naively thinks that his brothers will be just as excited to hear about his dream as he was to have it. And I suspect that his brothers are thinking that Joseph's so-called dreams are merely the result of dad's favoritism gone to his head. And the dreams don't stop there. Look at verse 9. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So what are you thinking, boy? <laughs> Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You know, it's as if Jacob thought there, maybe there is something to this. Well, Joseph's dreams will come true, but not as he expected. And he will have to wait a long time before he sees their fulfillment. A few verses later, the Bible tells us that one day Joseph is going out to meet his brothers who are shepherding in the fields, and they have frankly had enough of Joseph. Verse 18 says, They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. 
Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will, we will say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. So what do they do? They decide to strip Joseph of his ornate robe, and then they throw him into a cistern. But two of his brothers want mercy for Joseph. One of them, Judah, suggests that they sell him to a caravan of Ishmaelites who are on their way to trade in Egypt. So these are descendants of Ishmael. You'll remember the other son of Abraham. And that's exactly what they do. Joseph's brothers sell him for 20 shekels of silver. They dip his robe in goat's blood. And then they tell their father Jacob that he had been devoured by a wild animal. Now I just try to imagine as a father hearing this news. Uh, Jacob is devastated. And he says that he will mourn Joseph until the day he dies. This is the first of three major injustices in Joseph's life. Then we're told in Genesis chapter 39 that the Midianite merchants go down to Egypt and they sell Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. He's the captain of the guard. Despite this terrible turn of events in Joseph's life, his, his own brothers selling him into slavery, the text says that the Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered. As he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar is going to take notice of Joseph's character and his skills, and so he's going to put him in charge of the entire household and everything that he owned. And Potiphar noticed how blessed he was because Joseph was blessed. Joseph's life was blessed. And because Joseph, Joseph's God uh, was, had something to do with this. And so things were looking up for Joseph. That is until Potiphar's wife took an interest in Joseph, who we're told was a well-built and good-looking young man. You're likely familiar with this part of the story. Uh, Potiphar's wife eventually tries to get Joseph to sleep with her. He refuses. And so she grasps a hold of his garment, and Joseph flees, leaving his clothes behind. And she then accuses him of attempting to take advantage of her and convinces her husband of her lie. I mean, who doesn't want to believe and take sides with their wife, right? So she demands something be done. And Potiphar is furious, and so he throws Joseph into prison. I guess he could have had Joseph killed, but... Instead, he throws him into prison. Verse 20 says, And Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. Note that this is the second great injustice in Joseph's life. And in verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to uh, Joseph's care, all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. You continue to see this theme over and over again. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is prospering Joseph despite his circumstances. So don't miss this, folks. Whatever his situation... Joseph seeks to be a person of integrity, a person of character. He seeks to be the best 
at what he is doing, whatever position he is put in. He doesn't blame and complain, and as we will see, he makes no effort to even defend himself, nor does he try and get even. You know, I have to believe that's why the Lord continues to make him prosper. This is why the Lord is with Joseph. It's certainly not that Joseph didn't have his own internal struggles. It's safe to say that he did. He's a human being. He's not perfect. But he is self-controlled, and he is trusting God to give him justice, but in God's time and in God's way. You know, as I was reading this story, it reminded me of the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, You may remember this story by Alexander Dumas. Uh, Edmund Dantes, the main character, is wrongly accused and he's sent to prison. And instead of trusting in God to sort it out, Edmund sits, stews in bitterness, and plots his revenge after his escape from prison. And this is what he has in mind. You see, when he uh, grabs a sharp rock and he's running it over the stone walls of his cell, carving out, God will give me justice. But, you know, we see no evidence of this kind of thinking or behavior in Joseph's speech or any of his actions. Then sometime later, we're told in chapter 40 that two of Pharaoh's staff were thrown into prison with Joseph, a cupbearer and a baker. We're not told what they did to end up in prison there with Joseph. It says that they, they offended Pharaoh in some way. And whatever it was, Pharaoh jailed these guys until he could figure out what to do with him. And Joseph sees these men the next morning, and to him they seem unusually vexed. And so he asks, hey, what's the matter? Why are you so sad? Now notice, folks, that Joseph isn't self-absorbed. He isn't consumed with his own problems not to notice, right? We, We know this because he sees the disturbed countenance of his fellow prisoners, and he cares enough to ask what's wrong. Unbelievable, right? And then they tell him uh, about the dreams that they both had the night before, but they they don't know what they mean, so they're really troubled by it. Uh, Again, they would believe that this is something divine, uh, some foresight, knowledge about the future, but they don't know what it means. And so Joseph tells them that only God can interpret their dreams. Only this would be the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, their God, is the one who can interpret their dreams. And so Joseph asks them to tell him. Interesting, right? It's interesting because you would think that Joseph would be done with dreams by now. I mean, I can imagine that many of us would be like, dreams, well, forget dreams. My dreams uh, caused me to end up in this place. So forget your dreams. It appears that Joseph hasn't let go of his own dreams just yet. And so the cupbearer, who was like a secret service agent responsible for serving drinks at the royal table, making sure the king was protected from assassination attempts, tells Joseph his dream first. And Joseph interprets the dream to mean that the cupbearer will be welcomed back into Pharaoh's court, a favorable interpretation, and it cheers the cupbearer right up. See what I did there? After sharing his interpretation, Joseph immediately says in verse 14, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Would you mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison? I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put 
in a dungeon. Joseph is saying, please put in a good word for me. Tell Pharaoh about me, what I've done and about my innocence. Tell him about the way I ended up in a foreign land and how it's, it's not fair and just that I'm even in this place. But did the cupbearer bring this to Pharaoh's attention when he was released three days later? Unfortunately, he did not. This is the third in major injustice, third major injustice in Joseph's life, as Joseph would spend the next two years in the king's prison. Imagine how Joseph must have felt. Imagine the thoughts he must have wrestled with in his isolation. What did I do to deserve this? What about my dreams, God? Those dreams you gave me. I've only tried to do my best to be and do what you want and what you expect of me. I can hear Joseph saying, I'm by no means perfect, so I you know, shouldn't have told my brothers about those dreams. I, I know I said too much, but how is it fair to me, for me to suffer in this way? My best efforts have led to this? Is this my lot in life? You know, and I, I can imagine these things and more. Like, like even Jesus, how he was in the wilderness, thoughts sent from the tempter entering Joseph's mind. But from what we can tell, Joseph resisted his base impulses and he rejected the pathway of anger and a desire to get back at those who wronged him. Joseph chose not to become bitter and he didn't quit. Instead, he actively waited on God in faith. He believed that God works in the darkness. When it's dark, God is working. That even after everything that had happened to him and all of his plans had fallen apart, his hopes and dreams. Joseph clung to those dreams that God had given him, and he believed in a God who is good and a God who keeps his promises. And then it happened. Finally, after two long years of waiting, Pharaoh has a dream that no one in his house could interpret. And when those closest to the king couldn't help him, they begin to worry and fear for their own lives. When the king's not happy, you better watch out, right? Well, you remember the cupbearer? In what would appear to be a last-ditch effort to save his own life, the cupbearer just so happens to remember how Joseph had interpreted his dream when he was in prison for a few days. Genesis 41, verse 14 through 16 says, Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was hurriedly brought to, out to the, of the dungeon. Uh, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph interprets his dream to mean that there will be seven years of plenty before seven years of famine. He tells the Pharaoh that he must prepare for the hard times that are coming and that if he will do that, his people will survive. Verse 39, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and uh, so discerning as wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand, and he arrayed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot of his second in command, and they cried out in front of him, 
bow the knee. Joseph was 30 years old when he became Pharaoh's grand vizier, the second most powerful man in Egypt. And the Lord blessed Joseph and and word not only spread of his rise, but also of the God who made it so. Over the next seven years, Joseph prepared Egypt and the surrounding lands for the famine that was coming. And after those seven years were up, the famine came, just as God had revealed to him through Pharaoh's dream. And the Bible says that he then opened up the storehouses and the whole world came to Joseph to buy grain. That means that Joseph's family also came for the, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan where they lived. Genesis 42, verse 3 through 6. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who had sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Well, look at this. Joseph's dream, his vision from God had come true. The stars are bowing down, but his brothers don't recognize Joseph. And if you go on to read Genesis chapters 42 through 44, Joseph tests his brothers at this point. First, he questions them, acting as if they were spies, getting them to prove that they are not. They tell him about their family. They tell Joseph uh, where they're from. Joseph wants to know, though, where is the younger brother? that you say you have. And so he tells them to go, to go get him. After some back and forth and more testing, the brothers eventually retrieve Benjamin and bring him to Joseph. This is where Joseph finally begins to emotionally unravel and break down, revealing his true identity. Look at Genesis 45, 1 through 11. Listen as I read. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, the scripture says in verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Brothers and sisters, what a moving story of dreams 
and justice, of forgiveness, and of God's sovereignty. A story that reveals God's ability to bring good out of evil, to bring about his will despite the work of our enemies, and to fulfill his promises through unexpected events. It's hard to get our heads and hearts around it, isn't it? A story like this, not just how God was able to work his will through one injustice after the next, but also how Joseph was able to get better and not bitter. How Joseph was able to see God's hand at work through all of his trials and then forgive those who treated him so terribly. And toward the very end of the story, after his entire family had settled in Goshen, from where Moses would someday lead the people of Israel out and through the Exodus, Jacob, or Israel, dies, and the brothers once again worry that now that their father is dead, Joseph may finally get his revenge. But listen to how Joseph responds as you can hear the God who looks like Jesus coming through his words. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for my good. O oh Lord, help us so that we might see the evil done to us in the same way. Finally, let's close with a time of reflection as we are doing in this series. We want to ask, what does this story teach us about God, about ourselves, and about how we should live? First, what does this story teach us about God? Now, you may see many lessons in this, but here's one that sticks out to me. He is able, God is able to bring good out of evil and the harm that is meant for us. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, where Paul said, and we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, Paul says, God is able to take all of the things that are wrong in our lives and work them together for our good. Why? Ultimately, for the formation of character, for the formation of our lives, that we would become more and more like Jesus. We are being invited in this story to believe this about God and to believe that God can do this. And also to see this, I think, that God elevates favored servants through trials. This is the way God lifts people up. And you can see this with Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, so God exalted him. Same here with Joseph. It's what Henry Nouwen once called the way of downward mobility. Folks, if you want to be favored by God, if you want to be used greatly by God, we must be willing to go through the trials to experience the unexpected and believe that God is good through it all and that God is going to work it out. The second thing, what does the story teach us about ourselves? I think it says if we will remain faithful to God and stay the course, we will be blessed and be a blessing to others. Notice G Joseph never gave up on his gift. He never gave up on his dreams and his calling, no matter what had happened to him. 
You know, and, and it, I should say this, that I think we limit God when we resist his work in our lives through trials and tribulations. We resist, we limit God when we resist, and we make matters worse by our lack of faith and by our carnal behavior. When we're fighting and struggling and resisting and lashing out at the things that have gone wrong and the people we feel like have wronged us, we are not, we are not making ourselves a point in a place of blessing. Uh, we are not walking in God's will. Let God, church, right the wrongs in your life. Let God deal with the, those nasty brothers. Let God deal with the Potiphar's wives. Let God deal with the cupbearers. We see this in the story. You know, just as Joseph did, he let God deal with it. And he gave God the glory for his gifts, for the power that he had received, and for his position. And because of that, God blessed him and others through him. Lastly, what does this story teach us about how we should live? Well, here's the one takeaway I have for us. Live as if God will give your pain meaning. You see, church, nothing is wasted with God. If we'll trust him, he will use it. God doesn't cause the evils, you've heard me say many times, but he will use it for your good, and he will even make your enemies a footstool in doing it. You let God worry about them. You be faithful. You see, because God can use a famine. He can even use a pandemic to do something great in you, your family, our church, and our world really depends on how we respond. You see, this is how we can give thanks, as Paul said, to give thanks in all things and in all circumstances. And Paul doesn't say in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 to give thanks for all things or for all circumstances, but in all things and in all circumstances. Why? Because we serve a God who uses it all. We know that God will get the final word. We know that God is able and capable of bringing all things together and working them out for our good. So what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? As we've heard this story of Joseph and we make application to our lives. The invitation is this, let's learn from Joseph this Advent and let's allow this story to teach us as we wait on God after the unexpected has happened this year, may we have faith and courage to give God our unfulfilled plans and to give him our broken dreams and to trust him to do what is best. That is to work out all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Be blessed, church.